0: Hello, this is Examiner Radio, the weekly radio show and podcast that covers news, politics, and all things Halifax. I'm Tim Bousquet, editor of the Halifax Examiner, which is available online at halifaxexaminer.ca. In the studio, I've got Katie Toth. Hey.
1: Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here again. And via the miracle of telecommunications, we have Russell Grog. Hey, Russ. How are you, Tim? Great, great. Thanks for coming in. Or not coming in, I guess. <laughs> this is episode- Every, Everybody says that I phone it in. Yeah, there you go. You literally phoning it in today. This is episode number 98 of Examiner Radio. And as always, you can listen to the show on CKDU 88.1 FM radio in Halifax on Fridays at 4.30 p.m. Or anywhere in the world via www.ckdu.com.
2: C A.
1: It's amazing how the internet works.
2: You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and a variety of other platforms, and have each new episode automatically delivered to your device of choice. Just search for Halifax Examiner in that platform's search engine, and it's going to be the first result.
0: Today we're speaking with Stephen Cook, who is a longtime arts editor or arts reporter at the Conical Harold now on strike, uh, writing for Local Express, all-around good guy, uh, co-host of uh, the CKDU show, and, and just man about town. But uh, before we get to those interviews, let's uh, do the weekend review. What do you got, Russ? What do you got, Kate?
1: Well, how about, Bell, let's talk about what happened yesterday.
0: Uh, you have to pay me uh, a nickel for every comment. Ha! <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, basically, uh, Bell Let's Talk, for those of you who do not know or have been living under a rock, um, is a annual corporate branded campaign to where a very large telecommunications company offers five cents every time that a hashtag is used uh, to further the discussion of mental health. Um this year, there was a story that came out on, I believe it was on CBC, although it may have come out uh, in other places first, about a young woman who was a uh, working at a radio station in New Brunswick, at Grand Falls, New Brunswick, um, who she says was fired because she asked for mental health leave.
0: And this was a Bell station.
1: This was a, a Bell, Bell station, Bell. a station owned by Bell. Uh, totally, very much a bombshell that got dropped on what was supposed to be a feel-good corporate campaign. Uh, Russell, what do you think about all this? Uh,
2: well, I, I actually want to say, and without, without uh, tooting the, the horn of the new company I work for, uh, we actually um, uh, broke the story at Canada Land.
1: Canada Land broke the story.
2: We actually have an article on the website uh, from Maria McLean, who uh, is the, the uh, young reporter or young um, uh, host uh, of that station in uh, in Grand Falls, it's it's typical. I I'm, I can't say I'm I'm surprised. I think these corporate uh, these corporate campaigns it's just a way of of getting a crap ton of free advertising. And I don't believe they have any uh, you know. I mean, they're a corporation. They have no ethics or morals.
1: Also tax credits, right? I have not looked into oh, yeah. Bell's taxes. You know, I'm totally speaking out of my butt here. But like, yeah, when corporations donate money, they get huge tax credits and taxable losses out of it. And they manage to get that tax credit and get us all talking about how great they are.
0: Well, the counter to, the, the counter to this, of course, is that, uh, you know, they're raising awareness, uh, addressing issues of mental health, getting people to talk about it um i don't don't but
1: i would counter yeah raising awareness and getting people to talk about mental health is great but if we aren't talking about how to protect people make sure that they feel safe talking about their mental health give them a threat model just telling people to talk about their mental illnesses or challenges with mental health willy-nilly and giving people a false sense of security about the consequences that can arise when you're honest in a public forum about challenges you have is irresponsible
0: yeah I, d- I don't disagree with that. Uh you know we, we were talking before we came in um I I'm old and old school and and I was brought up that uh, doing charitable work and and uh uh doing uh spending money on on good causes is just something that's expected of you when you when you reach a certain economic strata or in a position to do it. Um and actually you don't go around tooting your own horn. It, it, there's or some, ringing your own bell yeah there you go there's oh there's, there's something unseemly about it um I, I i guess you know in this this modern world where instead of taxing corporations uh they're supposed to throw a few pennies into some charitable operation and and then we celebrate their generosity um i guess we don't care about these these old school ideas of mine but uh uh, as I see it, it's unseemly. I don't go around telling people where I spend my money for charitable events because uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's just it's icky. Yeah,
1: we need to talk about how grateful we are because we don't want to lose the generosity of our corporate or over- yeah. overlords. I, I'm of the
0: opinion that that uh, frankly, Bell or me or you should not have to spend much in the way of charitable dollars, that we should have a progressive income tax system and tax corporations at a rate that these things are, uh, these social needs that are out there and medical needs and mental health needs and the rest uh, should be taken care of uh, democratically. Uh, We decide where all our collective money goes to. And then, then after that point, if you have your favorite charity or whatever, certainly Give to that, but we've kind of reversed the whole process now, that where uh, the 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 where charitable dollars go or where where these are decided by corporations who are looking at it from how does it best benefit them, as opposed mm-hmm. to how it best benefits society.
2: Does that make sense? Uh, and just a just a follow up on the story itself. Uh, Bell has denied uh, the claims. Um, she, uh, they, they, uh, tweeted out yesterday that they can confirm that Bell does not dismiss employees because of mental health issues in this case or any other. And we reach out to offer support even when mental health claims are made after the fact we have done so in this case. So that's, that's their, uh, that's their position. Uh, when Canada land contacted, the radio station in uh, Grand Falls. The um, uh, director of news j- just simply said, "We do not comment on internal employee matters." So,
1: hashtag both sides.
0: <laughs> or, or you know, read into that. She's crazy. We're yeah. so fair we're,
1: and balanced. Yeah, both sides.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, it it it's all so unsettling. That uh, can we move on to something else? Yeah. Sure. What do you got?
1: Your turn, Russ.
2: Okay, let's talk about hashtag, uh, uh let's let's talk about HST rebates.
0: Oh yeah, that was a big story broken by Teresa Wright at the uh of Town Guardian this morning, Thursday morning. It seems if her reporting holds up and I she's an excellent reporter so I have no reason to doubt it that uh the federal government says that uh it it paid out uh hundreds of millions, that's a quote of dollars in excess hst receipts to atlantic provinces and it wants it back wants the money back we don't yet have a uh, figure for what that means for nova scotia but uh for pei it's it's uh 30 million dollars so assuming on a per capita basis it'd be about 200 million for nova scotia
1: can they do wow. that can they just ask for it back
0: well, I guess they can ask. Uh, no take backs. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. They said it was miscalculated. I, I'm looking here at their website to see if there's been a follow-up,
2: and and so far as I can tell, there hasn't. So um, I don't know. And again, like we, we don't know how it was miscalculated. Mm-hmm. They haven't been uh, specific about that. What could
1: this look like for Nova Scotia? I mean, presumably losing potentially, what did you say, $200 million of federal money? That doesn't well, seem great they, right now.
2: They'd have to pay it back, but now... Well, they have to pay it back over the course of three years. Yeah. Uh, I'm
0: sorry. I was I was uh, just pulling up the story to see if they had any update, and they don't. Uh, so it's just kind of sitting out there, this one story, and... Uh, we'll see what the veracity of it is and what what happens from here. Uh, but if it's true, then uh, uh, we've got a huge budget budget hole provincially. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, I yeah. don't I don't know what else to say about it other than this report is out there and it's could be uh, it it could ruin any hopes of a balanced provincial
2: budget for the Liberals, and it could be very disruptive. And would also uh, subsequently affect. The next election date, I would say. Be, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, you I, think
1: I, that much is going to keep affecting it? I thought we already. I thought the next election date had already been profoundly affected well, by don't... all the other stuff that had been happening. <laughs> let's talk about. Let's talk. Let's talk about teachers. Um, teachers are going back to work. Uh, no longer working to rule. It's getting phased out, um, and they've received a.
0: Tentative a contract. Tentative
1: contract. Do we think the teachers are going to accept it? They've turned down. What was it? Two tentative contracts yep. so far.
0: I, I I think they're going to reject it. There's nothing uh, potential. There's nothing significantly better than any of the uh, two previous contract offers. So uh, why would they vote for this one? And it's it's uh, even reluctantly. Uh, I think they'll say. Uh, and this is just me guessing. Uh, I think they'll say force us back, Force a contract on us.
1: I think I respectfully disagree. I think that the incident in terms of the Hawaii trip started really hurting them. I think public opinion is, you know, wearing a bit. You know, we had all these media reports about people who were worried about their proms, worried about their trips to Europe, et cetera, et cetera, like, you know, high schoolers and their parents. And I think that they are realizing that their strong bargaining position is becoming a weaker bargaining position, and they're going to want to get something on paper and get out.
0: They bet you 20 bucks.
1: Oh, we'll talk about it. We'll think about it. Let's talk about it. I,
2: I also, I also think the uh, uh, the teachers will accept.
1: Ooh, two against one.
2: Yes, uh, but not. Uh, I, I, don't think the, the Hawaii thing. I think that's already fading from people's minds. Nobody cares. Not any any longer. Uh, a month ago, it was a hot story, but now I just it's just. Uh, but I, I think there there are enough changes that I think the teachers will accept.
1: I think it's also one of those things where, you know, um, when you're running a campaign, you want to end on a high note. You want to like put a bow on it and thrive a party and say that you won, right? And like, Mm -hmm. they've been doing this for a long time. If this is even just a marginal win, they want to be able to get out and say they won for their members and move on. We're getting real dagger eyes from Tim in here, Russell. (laughs) <laughs> and they're all being directed at me right now. Hey, I'm
0: I'm I'm happy to be wrong. Uh, I just don't see it happening. But uh, time will tell. We have a vote next uh, next month, early next yeah. month, uh, February eighth, I think, sixth, eighth, something, sixth, I think. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we'll, we'll know then. Um, the little bit of talk I've had with a couple of teachers is that uh, no, they they don't like it. But we'll see.
1: Ultimately, it is the teachers' vote and the teachers' decision. So it could really it could be a wild card. We'll see.
0: Forty bucks.
2: I I want 40 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Listen, let's take a break here on Examiner Radio. When we come back, we're going to talk with uh, Stephen Cook of the Chronicle Herald.
1: Currently on strike, uh, writing for Local Express.
2: We'll be right back.
0: are joined in the studio by Stephen Cook. Hey! Hello! How do we uh, introduce you? You are um, a reporter?
3: Uh, Yeah, arts reporter. I tend to focus on the arts scene, music, film, theater, uh, to a certain degree, although uh, some of my colleagues are a little more theater-centric, but it does uh, come into my halo of of
0: And And you have been working with the Chronicle Herald for forever, since when?
3: Uh, actually it, it's funny. I just, uh, because it's been such a weird, crazy year, I hadn't been thinking about it. And then I started getting all these congrats on your 20th anniversary notices through LinkedIn.
1: (laughs) Oh, not a good time. (laughs) No,
3: bad timing. They're
1: bad for that. I've seen people get like congrats on your seventh or eighth anniversary of your PhD. And it's like, (laughs) Oh no. ABD stuff.
3: didn't need to know that. So, I mean, you know, technically I guess it's not Incorrect, but it's, it was you know kind of all of a sudden all these things started rolling in and uh, all these congratula- and I just couldn't answer them except you know there there's one or two people who kind of knew yeah. the situation some people were just kind of robotically saying congratulations yeah. and so so you've been on strike for a year now for for over a year yeah
0: what are you doing with yourself
3: uh, well the biggest chunk of my time is obviously there's the strike uh, and uh, writing for local express which is the website that the uh, newsroom workers have started to, uh, A, to show (laughs) her uh, employers uh, what they're missing out on by having us out on the sidewalk and also to keep ourselves sane, basically. If I wasn't doing some writing, I mean, obviously I'd be freelancing and I have done a little bit of that and some other outside things here and there, but uh, having like a steady regular slew of assignments for Local Express is one of the things that's kept my head screwed on straight through this whole ordeal.
0: What do you think? Can you tell us where 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 things stand with the with the union and negotiations and the, the
3: corporation? And is there any hope that there will be some resolution? Well, uh, I mean, uh, on the bright side, I guess if you want to look at it that way, there have been negotiations mm-hmm. <laughs> for the f- pretty much the first time uh, in a year. I mean, there there were some kind of talks uh, where they actually started looking at some of the issues in the summer that kind of went nowhere. Uh, and then uh, the uh, the union slapped the company with an unfair labor um, yeah <laughs> dispute, and uh, there was supposed to be a labor board hearing that was supposed to start last week and all of a sudden the company wanted to negotiate uh
1: that's p- convenient,
3: yeah, and uh essentially that put the uh, the labor board hearing uh, was put on hold, and there were some talks that were uh, reasonably productive from what I hear and then you know things kind of tapered off a little bit so you know, there's the question of, you know, well, did they actually want to negotiate or was it just a tactic to stall that labor board hearing? And, uh, you know, you can look at it yes. <laughs> either way if you want to.
1: So they're back at the table. Can you tell us a bit about where things stand in terms of what the union wants and what the Herald wants as of today?
3: Uh, I, I don't know a lot of the ins and outs of that. I'm not as connected to the negotiating aspect of things. And there's also I'm not 100 percent sure what stuff I can talk about <laughs> at the same time. Um you know I, I do, you know I do know that uh, you know we want to get back to work and, and we've agreed to concessions almost all the way across the board um, one of the big stumbling blocks is this sort of editorial hub that uh, they want to put in place where basically basically a lot of the editors and page layout people and and copy editors and that kind of stuff would essentially be laid off and rehired supposedly, uh, at, uh, in non-union positions yeah. and at mm-hmm. a lesser pay, basically. So, and um, there's a lot of issues around that that uh, are contentious. And we've even talked about discussing it. Like, you know, certainly, initially, it wasn't the sort of thing the union wanted to have on the table, but uh, we've been open to talking about it, but it's, you know, that's not enough apparently, so... Yeah.
1: One thing the union has been pretty adamant on that I've seen, and a lot of uh, people in the union have talked about, is sort of the issue of seniority. If I understand it right, um, the union says without seniority, there'll be a union in name only. Um, I was curious about that because it's my understanding that there are other media unions where seniority is not a factor um, that still negotiate for things like good severance, good packages, good health care, that kind of thing. I was wondering if you had thoughts on that.
3: Well, I mean, obviously, as someone who's been there 20 years, seniority is kind of important. Um, there was a, you know, the last sort of round of layoffs that took place kind of overstepped seniority anyway. So it's, and the union didn't put up a big fight because we've been trying to work with the company all this time, you know, up until the, the um, contract talks broke down or failed to start uh, essentially prior to the strike. Uh, and, and there were a number of things that we, we agreed, you know, we agreed to open up the contract and make changes to the pension, which some unions would, would just put their foot down right away and said, no. And we agreed to that. And we agreed to a, a number of other issues, uh, through the contract to try and, uh, ease the burden. And one of the things was, you know, when, when there was a round of layoffs, uh, we didn't squawk too much about the fact that they were kind of cherry picking, um, who they wanted to, uh, see go out the door. And, um... And I think that's a big part of why they're so adamant about it now because we kind of let it slide a bit uh, when we had it and we uh, gave them an inch we gave them an inch exactly and uh, you know it's 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 one of those things that uh, considering most of the members of the union are kind of uh, senior staffers at this point uh, it it seems like an easy way to target union members and uh, and get them out the door without uh, kind of a due process if you will
0: steven I, w- I wonder if we can talk about arts reporting. In, sure in Halifax um, you're, you're the man uh, <laughs> w- there's so many issues here a while back I, I guess it was about what three months ago there was a press conference held by various arts institutions and supporters of the arts who were decrying the situation uh, the strike situation um, because of the lack of reporting and lack of solid reporting and some of the arts organizations uh, said they w- refused to deal with the, the scabs at the Chronicle Herald um, and refused to, to play the game that they've been playing for a long time which was basically come take nice photos of us rehearsing mm. and we'll give you nice quotes and you'll have copy and we'll have uh, free publicity and that relationship has broken down in a lot of uh, organizations, and it's hitting the arts organizations hard. Do you have any insight into that?
3: Well, it, it has been. I mean, the, the Herald is in a unique position in that it is a province-wide entity. The you know the the person that reads the paper in Yarmouth uh, reads the same paper that the person reads in Sydney, for the most part. And the, there aren't many other ways to get your word out uh, across the province in that kind of way. And uh You know, I mean, certainly there's TV news outlets, but they don't have a lot of time for arts stuff. And, um, you know, CBC, well, there's a mainland CBC, and then there's the Cape Breton sort of branch. And so so there's a division there, and, um, you know, and they cover as much as they can. But they don't even have a dedicated arts reporter anymore, I don't believe. I think Phyllis McGregor was uh, taking care of that, and I think now she's kind of more part of the general pool who does cover arts when she can. So, you know, publications or media entities that cover... Arts in a more focused, direct way are pretty few and far between, especially with that kind of reach. So, for things like summer theater, all the summer theater companies noticed a, a significant drop off in uh, attendance, or ticket sales, or even inquiries into what they were doing. And uh, you know, and that's—I uh, think—that's just the tip of the iceberg for some of the stuff that's been happening. Uh, and same goes for some of the uh, some of the concert events that are more the independent kind of concert groups, and in, in say jazz or. Classical or you know experimental music or what have you.
1: I guess the question that follows up from that is You know if you've been supported by these arts groups If they've been refusing to talk to Harold scabs, and that's sort of putting pressure on the paper How long can we expect that to last? I mean it's one thing to go through one summer without Mm. that publicity, but to go through two It seems really difficult
3: Uh, well, it's, you know, it's up to them, I guess (laughs) we can't force anybody not to talk to the Herald, but you know, it is a matter of conscience and, and, you know, I'm being facetious, but you do feel kind of icky after talking to one of the, (laughs) the replacement workers, shall we say to use, and I'm making air quotes as I'm saying that, because it's obviously a term I'd rather use, (laughs) but, but, um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, you kind of leave it in their hands. You, I mean, you can, and, and they kind of know that it's not a cool thing to be dealing with these people, but uh there's not much you can do yeah, about that. Th-
0: the uh the work that has been done by the scabs, do you care to comment on, on that? The <laughs>
3: the arts work? Well arts work, I mean there's it's been pretty pretty meager. Um there's certainly no imperative to cover the scene. I mean obviously they have an art section in the paper, but you know, if you look at it there's there's there might be, you know, a handful of unbylined arts features running through the week some of them are, are just things that ran in their weekly papers that or, or submitted, submitted copy maybe or, or submitted copy and um and and a lot of wire stuff so uh they certainly scaled back
1: speaking of wire stuff how does that feel knowing that local express is uh taking stuff from the chronic, uh canadian press and so is the herald does that get weird for you guys
3: well no no we have a good relationship with canadian press um you know it's it's certainly for what we need to do it's it's an asset and uh, a necessity really um and the canadian press employees are on our side i mean <laughs> you know the uh they get furious when uh, the herald runs stuff without attribution and you know, sometimes incorporates CP stuff into some of their own yeah. stuff and then gets it wrong or screws it up. And, and there's certainly been examples of that, and we've heard from the CP people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what I wonder about is where we go from here. Um, I mean, obviously the, the best-case scenario for you and for uh, arts organizations and and even readers in terms of arts coverage is that, that the company and the union... Uh, resolves the strike and we get on back to business and, and some something resembling what we had before, um, but uh, outside of that, you know, I, L- Local Express uh, is is a great platform for for you to profile your work. Uh, there's no income there. Um, I'm I'm wondering. I publish a an online subscription based outlet news outlet and. Um, uh, and you I'm know, a subscriber. Yeah, grow and thank you, <laughs> and, and and growing and and able to expand coverage. But believe me, uh, arts coverage is entirely outside the realm of anything that I could even right. hope to get into. And I don't see what the revenue model is uh, for me. Uh, maybe somebody else could have a run at it. Have you thought about that in terms of? I mean, say the Chronicle Herald just laid you off, and that was the end of it. What what would you do? do how would you try to approach this
1: this is your opportunity to plug your hypothetical <laughs> patreon
3: yes well well i mean the local express does have a has, has its own patreon i i haven't thought a whole lot about you know when i cut all ties with the herald altogether. you know if and when that happens um certainly uh certainly i'd be freelancing to any and all yeah. <laughs> outlets that would have me but uh, certainly some sort of online presence and, and writing about things would, would definitely come under that umbrella. And doing doing my own thing with the Patreon and trying to be as comprehensive in terms of coverage. You know, perhaps me and my – you know, Andrea Nemitz and Alyssa Bernard, who are my fellow uh, Herald Arts reporters, would, would – gang up and, and do something together in that regard, it's hard to say, but that, that's certainly a thought for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, these are the things that keep me up at night, uh, thinking is just, what does this model look like going into the future? And in the past, you know, the Chronicle Herald, for all its faults, for all the things we've criticized it for and, and all its shortcomings, uh, was that all things to all people kind of old model media and arts coverage uh contributed to the overall everything for everything but but kind of another way of looking at that is is arts coverage was i don't want to use the word subsidized but there was there was funding available for for extensive arts coverage and you guys have done excellent work on that on I, i mean i really think uh it's not going too far to say that that may have been the best thing about the paper Oh, no, nice. and and uh, the only models that are out there moving forward are sort of these avatorial based You know, let's not say anything. Let's not give a theater company a bad review or or call out a band. Uh, you know, because we lose our potential funding
1: but tim how is that different from just arts coverage in general in a small city like it's always been a challenge throughout halifax to you know be critical and like write critique but at the same time make sure you can still get invited to the next show
3: well i mean given that how few and far the outlets are (laughs) um what are you going to do right what are you going to do um you know that's you know that's kind of a thing with me like i I have certainly been accused of not being critical enough in some cases but I you know I haven't I'm not in a lot of reviewing kind of situations I don't do regular music reviews at this point and um you know I was I was down to just doing from going I used to have a weekly music review column and just because of the workload and and not working overtime and that kind of thing that kind of fell by the wayside and I was kind of doing a CD of the week so which naturally would be something I would like <laughs> you know every week i wasn't going to rec as a yeah. recommendation as opposed to a, a sort of a critical review
1: cd of the week yeah. this one's garbage
3: yeah this cd of the week is the one you should ignore you know so i wasn't really doing that um you know un- unless it was like a major stupendous review uh release that was kind of hard to ignore like you know a new springsteen or something like that that i would toss in there and um you know perhaps might not be as fond of but it might be one that people want to hear about or something like that but um you know, if if I was doing something more independent, and um, you know, where I was just focused on doing arts coverage and things like that, I think there'd be more room yeah. for that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think of things like you know, the East Coast Music Awards and the granting process, and mm. and those sort of like the the just what's the context of all this stuff? No one's doing that reporting really locally
3: uh, at the moment. No, yeah. and I'm I'm not going to ECMA's. They're in St. John this year. Yeah, um, so I think next year. I don't know if they're back in Halifax the following year, but that would be fairly embarrassing if we were on stone strike in the in the ECMAs were in Halifax or East Coast Music Week or whatever. Um but I mean the the fact that there were talks over the past week, even if they might have just been a tactic to yeah. delay a labor board hearing, um, is it you know at least one of the first positive things that's happened in terms of negotiation that at least, you know, now they're stretching it out, you know, they're stretching out and actually looking at what negotiating is like <laughs> as yeah. opposed to stalling it yeah. uh, actually diving into it and going through things well uh, good luck
0: <laughs> thanks yeah uh, look uh, we're running out of time so i'll just say uh, uh thanks for coming in and and uh, we will be following closely and i don't know we'll see where we we'll go see from what here happens. yeah Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here. We've been speaking with Stephen Cook, who's the arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald, now on strike and working with Local Express. We'll return right after this.
2: Joining us on the line from uh, Florida is uh, Rick Edmonds of the Pointer Institute. Hi, Rick. How are you?
4: Hi. Good to be with you.
2: Very quickly, who are you? And for for the benefit of our our uh, Canadian listeners, uh, what is the Pointer Institute?
4: Yeah. Uh, well, my title there is media business analyst. Uh, I'm also a member of the faculty, so I uh, write, research, and teach about. Uh, What's happening in the news business, especially with newspapers, probably been doing that for uh, 15 years or so now. And uh, Pointer is a non-profit school for journalists, um, also owner of the uh, Tampa Bay Times, one of the best regional papers in in the country.
2: Okay, and that's that's actually, it is one of two papers in Tampa, is that right?
4: Uh, Not anymore. Uh, We bought the Tampa Tribune uh, not quite a year ago and have folded it into the Tampa Bay Times. Okay.
2: Okay, so you're so this is interesting that a, a, a major U.S. market, um, a not-for-profit, owns the daily paper.
4: Right. So the paper itself is is incorporated as a for-profit entity, so if it pays taxes, et cetera.
2: We we do not. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Uh, So I I sent you a a stack of information uh, about this situation uh, here in Nova Scotia with uh, the Halifax Chronicle-Herald. The paper marked uh, the auspicious one-year anniversary of uh, the majority of its reporters and editors um, hitting the picket line.
4: And do I understand correctly that uh, the 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 paper has continued to publish with (laughs) <laughs> Substitute writers or whoever's left there putting it
2: out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they they've hired a number of of uh, scab reporters. Uh, a handful were on. A handful of, of people were on contract. So a, a couple of columnists and an editorial cartoonist. Uh, but basically, everybody else is 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 gone. Uh, the current iteration of the of the paper is. I mean, it's wafer thin compared to what it was right. even a couple of years ago. You know the main news section only seems to have you know three or four byline reporters, and right. the vast majority of of the content is a mix of of non byline so you know rewrites of press releases or police reports yep. um lots of lots of wire copy and some really poorly uh, designated advertorial so you know the, the it's a it's a paper that's trying to co- be the paper of record um for a city of 350,000 and an entire province of close to a million people. Uh, So I'm just going to, I mean, a couple of questions. First of all, how are readers uh, and even non-readers, I mean, citizens in general, how are they losing out with this current product? And how do you educate and inform the public uh, about, you know, why this is crucial?
4: Well, uh, whether by virtue of the strike, which is a very dramatic way, or by attrition, which has happened at, at a great many papers, uh, you begin to end up with a situation where you really don't have uh, professional, experienced reporters covering government, other key institutions. And, you know, it just really, the net result is uh, less of the information uh, reader citizens need in a, in a democracy,
5: mm-hmm. and
4: uh, you know it's uh, it's happened so so gradually. I don't know. There's necessarily a high degree of alarm uh, about that, but it is pretty alarming, and uh, especially if <clears throat> the business continues to be bad and and the uh, attrition is that much worse.
2: Right, right. Uh, unfortunately, I mean the the Chronicle Herald is a, a privately held company, so they right. don't have to disclose their financials. You know, they claim that times are are, are too tough to have unionized reporters. Uh, but again, we, you know, nobody nobody beyond uh, uh, the president and CEO know know exactly what's going on. Know what the numbers are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, from a business standpoint, I mean, how would you advise the Chronicle Herald upper management to to try to adapt to this changing industry?
4: Well, it's certainly their choice, and I'd uh, I, I would. Uh I'd be a little presumptuous if if, uh, from a thousand or more miles away I I had a solution for them. I I have to say that the the course of uh, running a paper just really lean and uh, figuring that's uh, good enough is is not unique to them. But I I think it does have several downsides. The one I mentioned, I think that uh, uh, reader citizens begin to pick up that uh, there's not much there anymore. I think that editorial environment is is less valuable to advertisers, but uh, it puts me in mind of a a phrase my friend Phil Meyer, who was sort of the dean of uh, uh, scholars about the business of journalism, uh, offered 15 years ago that you get something that's uh, a vicious circle or even a a death spiral. I think was his term from uh, aviation that uh, you know as you uh, times are bad, you cut back. The uh, number of reporters and the amount of news um, that makes the paper less attractive; it loses circulation, then it loses some advertising revenue, and this cycle just kind of repeats itself. And uh, uh, I think it has played out that way in many places. More um, typically, it it results in papers that are very thin than papers that actually go out of business.
2: Mm-hmm. And we, we've seen a lot. Of, I mean, we've seen a number in Canada. A number of dailies uh, have folded. And certainly, in right. the states um papers have folded, they've uh, amalgamated, or they've reduced i know the the New Orleans time picky for times picayune for uh a while there went to a i think a three day a week uh, publishing schedule is that right
4: yeah that's right they uh, they have restored some of those days because they got uh, both protests and some uh competition from another paper in the
2: state so for you know small and medium market papers um you know, it's not fair to compare them, you know, compare them to what The New York Times is doing or what The Correct. Washington Post is doing or The Wall Street Journal. I mean, it's that's apples and oranges. Yeah. Uh, but in your uh, capacity, I mean, are you seeing certain papers that are are trying something new or trying new oh, initiatives? Sure. And there,
4: there are a number. And, and I'll give you a few examples. Um The Dallas Morning News, which is actually a public company, but it's really a single paper, now that's a big metropolitan area, has had quite a lot of success with with, uh, various uh, business innovations, especially in the area of offering marketing and advertising services as opposed to just selling ads. Mm -hmm. Um, They're doing some ambitious things with with their news side, too. Uh, Star Tribune in Minneapolis is another example of that. and they are independently run paper and a third one that comes to mind is the post and courier in charleston south carolina which is uh... won a pulitzer prize and done a lot of other distinguished reporting they really invest in good journalism and uh, they've actually had a an ownership that's been various media businesses for thirty or more years so they uh... And that's run well enough that uh... uh that provides it's sort of the, the virtuous cycle that provides money for them to experiment and invest, so it, it can be done. I, I, I would add though, and I think this is probably relevant to the conversation we're we're having that for the last couple of years i've heard a, a number of people say that, especially for sort of a mid-sized paper, it gets harder and harder to to do it on your own. Mm-hmm. and the the advantages of uh, having the scale that uh, being with a chain. Uh, provides and being able to have centralized services, but then particularly being able to uh, move with a sort of fast-moving technology to be up-to-date in content management systems and uh, uh, many of the other things that, that will give you sort of a vibrant uh, paper plus digital presence. Uh, that, uh, well, it's not out of reach, but that's, that's that much more difficult for uh, individually-owned paper. So we've seen the sale of, many family owned papers to uh chains in the last uh in the last couple of years in the
2: United States. Sure, and that's that's happened north of the border as well where right. Yeah, uh, I know you
4: have a high degree of consolidation. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. I mean there are you know three uh four four chains that own virtually every paper in in the country. Um and the Halifax Chronicle the Chronicle Herald is actually one of the very few completely independently owned dailies right. uh remaining. So but, but I mean what I took out of I think what you were saying about um uh Charleston is that better content and maybe more innovative content could help to end that uh what you call the death spiral.
4: I think that's right. And it's a uh, you know I mean I have to I, I don't want to be glib about it. It's it's a bit of a gamble and um you know it it takes uh take a talented editor to to bring that program off and some good hiring maybe some uh good luck in having uh uh big news in your area as Charleston uh, unfortunately has had with the shootings and some right. other things that have happened there but uh, but yes it can be done.
2: Okay. Rick Edmonds from uh the Pointer Institute. Uh thank you for taking uh, some time out of uh out of your uh, busy schedule. Uh good to talk to you. And I'm, I'm glad to do it. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll send you a link to the show when it's, okay, uh, terrific, when it goes thank live. You. All right. Yep. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming out here to support the, the Halifax Typographical Union, the striking workers of the Chronicle Herald. It's been one full year, 365 days in all manner of weather, these folks have been on the picket line. They were forced on the picket lines January 23rd of last year in a defensive strike against
6: a union-busting employer. My name is Leanne Heller. I'm an editor on Strike from the Chronicle Herald. Looking back on it, I don't know really how we got to this point. I don't know why more people haven't fallen ill. It's very, very stressful to be on a picket line and to not think of your life as anything but being on Strike. That gets to you after a while. on strike
4: for this nonsense. There's absolutely no reason for this strike. It's crazy.
7: We've offered them to get out of their pension plan. We've given them wage cuts. We've given them concessions across the board on areas and it's still not good enough. What kind of employer, any other employer would take what we've offered and be running with a big smile on their face. We finally got these guys back to the table. We have to beg, borrow and steal to get these guys to come to the table. But we've got them there and we're hopeful that we can make a breakthrough But I'll tell you one thing, if we don't, this fight is going to get louder, stronger, and harder. And we're going to come at them with more guns in the next month, in the next two months, and the next year, if necessary. The
6: union bargaining team and the management bargaining team are meeting. They're going to be meeting this afternoon. They've been meeting all last week. And that is a precedent in itself because... It's been a long, long time since they've sat down at the table together to talk. So we're, you know, the expression, cautiously optimistic. This,
2: at the end of the day, is about quality jobs and quality journalism in this province. Do you want it? And if we want it, we've got to fight for it. It's Paul Schneider-Wright, editorial writer and columnist. Been with the paper 33 years. the paper itself, I think, is a shadow of what it was. Uh, you have very inexperienced writers. Uh, there's a lot of mistakes in the paper. Uh, some of the uh, judgments being made are quite questionable in terms of stories. So it hasn't been, it has been very good, and the public has noticed.
6: Have you had a look at the newspaper? Do you remember that lovely story about the Syrian refugee children? Well, that's just one example of the kinds of irresponsible journalism that is being practiced by the Chronicle Herald. Press releases used as entire news stories. Sources plucked from the pages of Facebook instead of actually going out and interviewing people. Friends, there, there are some anniversaries that you celebrate and uh, there are other anniversaries that you... You just mark, and there are a a number of things that we mark today on this Black Anniversary Monday. We, We mark first, as Tony has rightly said, the abject moral failure of the McNeil Liberals to respond uh, with the effectiveness and engagement and responsibility to this labor relations disaster that has been being called for from them now for 365 long
8: days. I'm Lisa Roberts. I'm the MLA for Halifax Needham, representing the NDP. We've tried to support the local express both by being available for interviews, and a number of MLAs are advertising on the local express, which is the the publication put out by the striking workers, and then just uh, raising raising it in the House of Assembly when we're when we are in session and asking the provincial government to show some leadership because this is. This is a particularly important institution. I mean, journalism is, is, plays a role in democracy, and, and as someone who was a journalist for a long time, I really notice um, how many fewer journalists we have who are able to cover Nova Scotia in the way that we really require as citizens. Our next speaker is the president of the Halifax, Dartmouth, and District Labour Council, Sister
2: Suzanne McNeil.
1: so much. Thank you all for being out here today. And um, on behalf of 25,000 unionized workers in the Halifax Regional Municipality, I want to say that throughout this year, the Halifax Typographical Union has certainly been in all of our thoughts and in all of our hearts. Um, We know how difficult it is to walk a picket line, even for the shortest uh, length of time. And to do this for a year is certainly a grueling experience.
5: So, so, so!
6: Solidarity! So, so, so! Solidarity! So, so, so! Solidarity! With this group and the support we've had from other unions, you're not alone. And that's an important thing you realize about union membership, is you become part of a larger group and it's not just a superficial way of putting it, it really is true.
8: I mean, for me, solidarity is is um, being with the people going through what they're going through. So these are workers who have been walking the pavement for a year. Um, so so a being just mindful of that, showing up every once in a while um, to to walk with them. Uh, so supporting, doing anything we can to amplify their voices and strengthen their cause. So that includes, you know, financial support, it includes, it includes speaking uh, and amplifying their messages, it includes sharing their stuff on social media, and it includes asking the McNeil liberal government to help to arrive at a resolution to this. We shall not
5: be moved just like a tree that's standing by the water We shall not be moved We're fighting for our rights now. We shall not be moved. We're fighting for our rights.
0: I'm joined on the phone by Bob McChesney, who is a prof at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Bob writes about the role of news media in democracy and is one of the three co-founders of Free Press, which is an American advocacy group that calls for a free and open internet uh, for net neutrality and is against media consolidation. He's also the author of an of a book called "The Death and Life of American Journalism: The Media Revolution That Will Begin the World Again." That's a mouthful, Bob McChesney. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. We, uh, you, you have a plan to save American journalism, <laughs> uh, which is a, a, a remarkable uh, claim. What, what does that look like?
7: Well, it, it, the plan that. Uh that i have is and it's open to uh improvement believe me uh basically is premised on the idea that, that we've lived under the fallacy for a century in the united states and i think increasingly the rest of the world including canada the journalism only exists to the extent it's market driven that someone can make money doing it and for much of the 20th century it's not all of it that was true uh, there people were making enormous profits publishing newspapers and doing news media it looked like the market was going to sign favorably on um, allocating resources to do journalism. Uh, and the only question was, uh, how good of a job they did? Were, were there high standards? Yeah. And that was the real real issue and attention was in the 20th century. Well, I think now we're seeing the collapse of the resources going to journalism. The commercial business model has died. And uh, the You know, we have far fewer working journalists today in the United States uh, getting paid to do journalism on old or new media. Uh, than we did a generation ago. I mean, newsroom after newsroom is closed down. (laughs) It looks like a barren sort of graveyard compared to what it looked like 20 or 30 years ago. And um, then that's a really, so the commercial model's not dead. And then in in investigating American history and the history of other countries, it becomes clear that before advertising emerged and the dominant form of support uh, for journalism by the end of the 19th and 20th century, um, journalism was very viable in the U.S. and in some other countries, but it was largely subsidized. It was, journalism was understood as something that the public had to create, the market wouldn't create it. And there were major postal and printing subsidies in the United States. There were similar subsidies in other countries, but the United States is by far the leader globally.
5: Yeah.
7: Uh, that spawned a really rigorous, independent, competitive, free press system. And so our our principle is that not the commercial model of journalism is dead. We're back at the beginning. We're back where the U.S. was uh, 150, 200 years ago, at the beginning of the Republic. And when this country was founded in the United States, it was well understood that the market would not generate sufficient journalism, require aggressive and intelligent uh, subsidies and policies to have a free press. But we've got to have that same sort of thinking now, because the commercial model is dead, Advertising uh, in the age of the Internet has no reason to support uh, uh, journalism anywhere, let alone old media, but not even online.
1: Uh, And, you know, in in some ways, it seems like even the commercial model itself was a form of subsidy, right? Like you talked about journalism being market driven, but in many ways, the journalism itself wasn't market driven. It was just in the newspapers beside things that were actually driving the market.
7: Yeah, I mean, what happened was for, there was this marriage of convenience for roughly a 100 years when advertisers wanted to reach certain audiences and communities, and newspapers were the best way to do it. And the relationship with journalism was purely opportunistic or coincidental. And now advertisers have better ways to reach their consumers that doesn't don't entail them having to subsidize journalism. Uh, and they've opted to do that, which makes perfect sense from their behavior. They're ra- acting rationally. Yeah. But it means that, you know, final readers, uh, actual consumers of the news, have never paid the full freight. They can't but to make journalism work. Uh, it was advertising put up the vast majority of income or revenues for a long time. Before that, it was all sorts of extensive government printing and postal subsidies that made it possible. And we're at the point now where advertising's jumping ship, and then there's not much of a product left, so there aren't many people willing to pay either. Well, uh, a, you put a, that together, it's a disaster for the commercial journalism model.
0: Yeah, a couple of things. So we see papers uh, folding left and right. Uh, I, I'm of the opinion that it's doubtful that most cities in North America will have a daily newspaper by the end of the decade. Uh, I, you know, I don't know what you think about that. But uh, um, you you go back to this prior age in the 19th century with all these postal subsidies, and, and I, I think you're right. Yes, uh, uh, the very vibrant uh, press of the day was was uh, the creation of government subsidies uh, in in all sorts of ways but you know they didn't have at that time uh, an ideological uh, just disdain for uh, government subsidies that seems to to uh, control most Western countries right now, uh, this political idea that uh, you know you're out there in this free market and you better damn well compete all on your own uh, on your own terms and stop looking for handouts so how do you bring those those uh, those old school uh, attitudes that that uh, well we've got to support the press uh, through government uh, action how do you bring that into an age that Uh, you know, a neoliberal age that just uh, uh, is totally antagonistic to that view.
7: Well, that's right. I mean, we've had 40 years now of intense, unrelenting uh, propaganda. The government cannot be a force for good. It can't solve problems. It's only evil. That The only source for good in the the society is someone trying to make as much money for themselves by any means necessary. That's, That's sort of the good behavior. That's moral behavior. Uh, and that sort of turned on its head every bit of biological or moral philosophy for the last two centuries or two, two millennia yeah. in, in that argument. But uh, you know, it's interesting. what you're you're starting to come before the 20th century. Uh, the U.S. government, the federal government of the United States, and I suspect most other countries. Was never regarded as being sort of a very progressive force. It wasn't, and it didn't do social welfare programs. It didn't have old age pension. It didn't really play much of a role in education. Uh, governments were really held in very low regard in terms of serving people. They were primarily for tariffs and police and military. Uh, but it's one thing in the United States that was striking, was it was understood from the beginning that it was the first duty of the federal government to make sure there was a credible press system or else a governing system wouldn't work. And so it was an anomaly at the time. It wasn't part of a vision that, you know, we should have a progressive government. Because in the, the United States, that didn't really happen until the 20th century at all wow. in any meaningful sense. Uh, I think the, the way around it is to tell the truth. I mean, what's striking when you look at it is this is the truth. and. Uh, the neoliberal line just simply doesn't hold up if you actually want evidence. Now I know we're living in a world where people put forward alternative facts. Now post facts. Yeah, that's right. And uh, but unfortunately, unfortunately, I think a lot of people still want actual facts that have you know supported by evidence and theories that are supported by facts that are based on evidence. And the the facts are that. Um, the commercial model is that if we treasure journalism, if we, if we have to follow the the logic, which is it must be created. I mean, we could no more expect the market to produce satisfactory popular journalism. Uh, there's no evidence that it could ever do so any more than we could expect the market in and of itself to produce satisfactory mass education. So Should what does that look do like?
0: That? What does it look like, government subsidy of modern media?
7: <clears throat> how could it look or how does it look? Well,
0: How could it look?
7: Because we have extensive subsidies of media in the United States and Canada already, but they go to private sector interests, uh, so they're not considered subsidies. You know, those uh, cable and satellite television monopolies the government's give to a few companies, those are massive indirect subsidies to those companies. Uh, they, they get, in the United States at least, billions and billions of airwaves and cable monopolies for free, or virtually for free, uh, and that's a huge subsidy. We just don't call it a subsidy because when business gets it, it's sort of never regarded it as anything nefarious. Only when someone else might get it, Yeah. Uh, the people of the country. But how would look? The, I think the proposal I'm keenest on. Let's get right to the cut to the chase yeah. here. And the one I think has gotten the most attention internationally comes out from an economist in the U. S. named Dean Baker, and he basically uh, came up with this idea, and I've embellished it. Well, uh, with John Nichols, which is that if every citizen in the country, eighteen or older, should be entitled to allocate two hundred dollars of federal money to any nonprofit, noncommercial news medium of their choice, uh, as long as the uh, uh, media meets the nonprofit criteria set up by the Internal Revenue Service, which are pretty uh, ingrained and, and solid yeah. because they've been doing this for years. I mean, they're ingrained <clears throat> and,
1: and solid, but they're also not right. Like churches are able to get nonprofit status. Um, and there have been all sorts of loopholes that are used. Like, aren't you concerned at all about corporations that have amazing tax lawyers finding ways to get hold of that nonprofit money, making a nonprofit hub, a foundation, a charity with their name on it, get some taxable losses? It's a win-win-win, except it doesn't actually accomplish what you're doing.
7: Yeah, you well, know, I think there's always going to be problems, and you're never going to have a perfect system. I think you're absolutely right, uh, but you can make something better than you can. You try to learn from experience and eliminate the problems. You know, the IRS in the United States has done a pretty good job of weeding out those sort of uh, efforts to get around the spirit of a law. Uh, It can be done. It's never going to be perfect. There's just someone who's going to get it. There's a handful of things you can put into any code that eliminate the most uh, egregious uh, efforts at fraud. So I'm not really that worried. And I think, you know. If you have to, if you lose one dollar to fraud and you have a thousand dollars go to journalism, that's a trade off. I think most people are willing to make.
0: You've got a. Uh, uh, I'm certainly
7: willing to make it, and I think most Americans and most people would, given that alternative. I don't think we're going to see fraud beyond that, unless it's the most poorly written law yeah. ever, and then I wouldn't support it. So, and I don't think many journalists would.
0: You've got a president uh, who has uh, gone to war against the press. Uh, Yeah,
7: I don't expect him to to, uh, be endorsing anything like I'm talking about. I think we have a president right now whose whole political project in the United States is based on having an illiterate population uh, without any credible journalism so that he can just sort of spin his alternative world and not have it really be challenged and have it presented as truth. So he's what you get at the end of the trail when you no longer have journalism in a society.
0: I think our producer gave you some background information on our local labor situation at the Chronicle Herald.
7: A little bit, yes.
0: Yeah. Do you have any insight into that, or any any thoughts about it?
7: Well, I, now I'm just, just from memory from a few weeks. I mean, Halifax is on the verge of possibly losing it to the daily newspaper. Is that correct?
0: Yes. A st- and it would be the
7: largest city in that situation in North America, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Um, probably. We're a year into a strike at the, the paper. Um, you know, they're putting it out with scabs, and, and um, it's, it's a very low quality. Uh, it seems to be on the verge of financial collapse, but we don't know that because it's family-run, so we don't have uh, access to the financials, but um, it, it's, it's a dire situation.
7: Well, you know, in the United States, I've worked with the uh, Newspaper Guild, which is the uh, union for newspaper reporters and editors, reporters in the United States for 70 years, 80 years now, <clears throat> and they've been facing this situation in a lot of cities where daily newspapers are, <clears throat> you know, on the verge of going under <clears throat> or downsizing radically. And at one point, they about five or six years ago, they gave serious consideration to mm-hmm. trying to buy up the papers themselves. Uh, if they were passing, but they could, still couldn't afford them, even at the plummeting prices, because the real estate property was so uh, valuable to these companies, oftentimes they had in cities. I think in the future, in the United States and Canada, and a lot of other places, uh, I think there's going to have to be some sort of uh, policy set up where we can have the you know um, journalist-run, worker-run, uh, some sort of cooperative news media with some sort of subsidy system ideally competing news media uh, in the same community like Galifax. But there, we're going to have to start thinking we can't. We've got to get this system is scaling, and it's scaling before our eyes. It's crashing and burning, and there's, no one anywhere has any idea that the system left to its own devices will ever return us to having the number of working journalists and competing news media that a free society, a self-governing society needs. Yeah, We've got to start thinking of alternative institutions and ways to get uh, create independent journals and uncensored uh, competitive so competing for stories uh, but with the resources so people can do it and make a living doing it and you have editors and fact checkers and and professional quality it's not just people doing it on their free time uh, who are working day jobs
0: okay well let's leave it there um it's it's <laughs> yeah I, I don't know what what else to say to that but we very much appreciate your input um, thanks thanks for being with us today
7: my great pleasure, and good luck up there. I'll keep following what you yeah, do. We'll good keep luck you to informed. all your brothers and this in the union.
0: Yeah. We've been speaking with Bob McChesney, who is the author of The Death and Life of American Journalism. We'll have a link to that on our website at HalifaxExaminer.ca, and we'll return right after this. That's a wrap for this week's Examiner Radio, the weekly podcast and radio show produced by the Halifax Examiner. I'm Tim Bousquet.
1: I'm Katie Top.
2: And I'm Russell Gregg. As always, we'd love to know what you think. If you have comments on what you've heard or story suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email to podcast at halifaxexaminer.ca. Until next
0: week, your word is 40 bucks.
5: (laughs) No. (laughs)